0: I'm Tyler Crawley. And I'm Taylor Griffin. And this is Access of Reason. Well, it appears as if the Never Trumpers may have a savior. Just kidding. But we are going to talk about Joe Walsh, possibly. Or no, he is running. He is running in the Republican primary in this episode of Access of Reason. I am Tyler Crawley. With me, as always, my co-host, Taylor Griffin. What's up, Taylor?
1: Good afternoon, Tyler. When we started talking about this before the show, you're saying, Joe Walsh, it's a really interesting guy. And my comment is if, if you find craven opportunists interesting, that's great. This is a guy who is now running against Trump in a Republican primary. Who started his career as a failed pro-choice moderate Republican candidate in the state of Illinois, then won a seat in Congress and lost his reelect, being a right-wing, fully pro-life candidate. It has a record of tweets that are so racist they would make Donald Trump blush, and now he says he's going to be the guy to restore civility to Washington and to the White House by running against Trump. Aren't we lucky?
0: Yes. No, I mean, like I said, that is to me is what is interesting about the whole thing, because what I find fascinating, because I, you know, as someone who has sort of witnessed uh, this shift in the Republican Party, what's amazing to me is that Joe Walsh, in er, on earth too, right? You know, this magical place where Mitt Romney won in 2012 and and Donald Trump didn't win in 2016. And this place where all this, you know, magical stuff, the, the world where things didn't end up happening and we're better off for it. But on earth too, Trump fans would be Joe Walsh fans. I mean, this is a guy who, as you mentioned, you know, was a huge tea party guy used to talk about Obama being a Muslim bought into the birther conspiracy bought into the Seth Rich conspiracy before Trump got elected, said that if Trump didn't get elected, he was going to grab his musket. uh, And I guess, you know, once again, start a war because Hillary Clinton became president, things like that, that Trump supporters would love. But because we are in the tribal world that we are in, what's funny is the people that should hate Joe Walsh, the never Trump supposed, um, you know, elitists like Bill Kristol and others are the ones that are supporting him. And then the Trumpkins, are the ones that are mad at him because he's challenging the messiah, Donald Trump. And so to me, what's fascinating is that because we are tribalistic, Joe Walsh is being supported by some of the elite never Trumpers and being uh, absolutely criticized by the Trump supporters, even though Joe Walsh's entire career, or at least the time since he won as a Tea Party candidate, the Trump supporters should love him. So that's what I find interesting about it. Let's talk about other
1: challengers as Donald Trump that don't have a Chinaman's chance of winning (laughs) the nomination for the Republican Party. We've also got Bill Weld, former libertarian vice presidential candidate in 2016, also former governor of Massachusetts, turned uh, marijuana pitchman for Wall Street-backed funds that are going around buying marijuana dispensaries and whatnot. and. Bill Weld also has no chance of winning the nomination as a Republican. Why can't we get a candidate that is challenging <laughs> Trump, but is actually reasonable?
0: Tell me that, Tyler. Well, I, I will say this. It's because anyone with reason isn't going to challenge Trump. It was funny. Um, so I watched Joe Walsh announce his candidacy for the most part on George Stephanopoulos' show this weekend. And I got to see the interview. And there, at a point, he talks about, Joe Walsh makes a comment about how You know, Republicans know he's a liar. Republicans don't trust him. Republicans know he's bad for the country, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, Stephanopoulos challenges him and points out that a new Monmouth poll came out over the um, weekend that showed that Trump had 84 percent of uh, support of Republicans. 79 percent believe he should be reelected. Other polls have it even higher than that. And what Walsh meant was that a lot of Washington Republicans, the rumor is, is that's what they think. But they're afraid to say it. Because so much of the base, I do believe that Monmouth poll is correct. 80% of the Republican Party thinks the president should be reelected and will support him. And so if you are a supposed potential challenger, if you are thinking, you know, maybe someone like a Nikki Haley, a Ben Sass is going to try like a, you know, a Ronald Reagan 1976 and challenge the Republican incumbent. They know it's not going to happen because, you know, at least in 76, there was some possible support out there for Reagan over Gerald Ford. That is not the case. There is not enough people in the Republican party that do not like Donald Trump, at least not out there in the electorate. And so if you're smart, you're definitely not going to try and make a challenge because not only will you not win this time, it could impact your ability to run in 2024. So anyone who has a legitimate shot is staying and laying low. The only people that are going to pop up, are people that have nothing to lose like the Bill Welds and the Joe Walsh's and the Mark Sanford's and maybe even Kasich, potentially people that have no future in the Republican Party. And it's is that a sad state of affairs? Probably. Unfortunately. We talk about this a lot. I think that, frankly, as a Trump skeptical
1: conservative, I would be more than happy to throw my lot in with, say, a Ben Sasse on a kamikaze mission for the Republican nomination. I know it's a kamikaze mission, but you know what? I'd do that just out of principle. But these guys that are running, they're clowns. Bill, you can't take Bill Weld seriously. You can't take Joe Walsh, seriously, he's an opportunist. And so we don't have there's a narrow, narrow little sliver of the Republican Party, which I think includes you and me, Tyler, Mm -hmm. who are actual conservatives, who actually hew to conservative principles. And a big part of their annoyance with Trump is his failure to do so. And we might get behind a candidate just because of our principles. But none of these options in the Republican primary Offer any alternative to Donald Trump. So we are stuck once again with a Trump or somebody from this Democratic primary field, which isn't a good place to be in as a conservative. It's a very sad time.
0: Well, and there's not even like, I mean, the the only conservative Democrat is Joe Biden. I mean, he's the only sort of moderate Democrat that has a shot. And you're looking at that saying my choice could be between, you know, Bernie Sanders, who's a Democrat socialist. That's definitely a no. Uh, Elizabeth Warren. Hard no on that. Who is, I mean, it's pretty much a hard no on all the front runners right now. And so once again, Republicans like you and I are going to have to decide, do we vote third party? And for, you know, lack of a better term, throw away our vote. uh, Or do we decide to bite the bullet and vote for Trump? And yeah, it's a crappy position to be in, unfortunately. Um, but I'll say this, this is, this is one of the, the really interesting things about that concerns me. And, um, as I mentioned, you know, I've been reading and I'm, I'm almost finished. It's taking me a while. I'm a slow reader, uh, Tim Alberta's book, American carnage. And he talked about why all of these skeptical Trump supporters in 2016 ended up that last couple of weeks, you know, sort of circled the wagons and got behind Trump. And it kind of surprised a lot of people, especially after the access Hollywood tape came out. And the argument is, and this is the argument that Alberta makes and others make, is that the Republicans were convinced that Trump was going to lose. And what they didn't want to happen was for Trump to lose. And then Paul Ryan had been openly hostile to Trump's campaign. Then the entire base goes, Paul Ryan's the reason that Hillary Clinton is in the White House. Um, It's all these never Trumpers that are the reason why Hillary Clinton's in the White House, Mitch McConnell, everyone else. And so they all coalesced around him and then he won. And and but you think about the reasoning for why they backed him. And to me, it seems very similar now. Let's say a legitimate person like a Nikki Haley or Ben Sass does challenge Trump. There's a legitimate shot that Trump could lose in 2020, right? I mean, it all depends on the research and the data and everything else that you look at. But there's a legitimate shot. I mean, Trump has never gotten close to 50 percent, which is usually the benchmark for whether or not a president gets reelected. Let's say He loses they're not going to blame Trump's, you know, tact. They're not going to blame him ruining the economy. They're not going to blame, this, you know, the stupid trade war that he started or the fact that he spent all of this money or that, you know, he messed up and said all these dumb things and alienated voters. No, 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 no. They're going to blame Nikki Haley if she ran or Ben Sass if he ran or Joe Walsh or whoever. They're going to blame them because there's no other way. Because remember, no one loses an election, right? If Hillary Clinton loses an election, it's because Trump did something uh, and suppressed the votes. If Trump had won, it would be because, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, all these illegal voted. No one can admit they lost an election. So if you can give them a reason, they're going to go to it. And I think that's the danger of someone running against Trump is that it would give the Trump voters to go, oh, you know what? Maybe Trump was a bad candidate. No, 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 no. They'll blame the candidate uh, that ran against him, especially third party for weakening the president and keeping Trump from getting a second term. That's the concern, I think.
1: The big question here, Tyler, that we're always asking on this show. Is what does the economy do? Because I think that's going to decide it. And even as difficult as the Republican primary is, if the economy starts turning south relatively soon, Mm -hmm. we could see a Republican primary challenger get emboldened because Trump will be in a much weaker position. Because there are a lot of people who say, look, Trump's tweets and his antics annoy me. At the same time, The economy is pretty good, and I just don't want those socialists taking over. But if the economy turns sour and somebody can make a credible case, which the media will, (laughs) they will not shy away. (laughs) If someone can make a credible case that it is Donald Trump's fault that the economy has turned sour, there is... A little bit of an opening for a Republican to challenge him in the primary. We may see somebody else come in. And as we always talk about, one of the very reliable indicators of a coming recession is an inverted yield curve. And right now we're inverted on the three month versus 10 year treasury. And we're almost inverted on the two year versus 10 year treasury. And every time that has happened in the past, we have had a recession within a year and a half, two years. And so it, who knows if there'll be a recession tomorrow, but a an inverted yield curve generally precedes a recession. And this trade war with China could just shock an already kind of edgy economy into going negative.
0: Yeah, and I think that's 100% correct. I mean, it's weird that Trump's greatest assets going to 2020, he's thinking about tanking. <laughs> it's like the weirdest thing ever, but then that's what Trump does. Um, but speaking of the economy, we got to talk about this op-ed that came out today from former New York Fed President Bill Dudley. It was in Bloomberg, and it got a lot of attention because essentially what Dudley is arguing in this op-ed, because as, you know, Taylor, you just mentioned, uh, the economy is right now. There's a lot of fear about what could happen. Could we go into a recession? If that happens, the Fed is going to lower rates. Now, another thing they might do is try to prevent the recession from happening so they will preemptively lower rates. And so everyone says, and you can look at, I mean, pretty much everyone on Wall Street, based on what's happening, says they're going to raise rates at their next meeting. And what Dudley argues is that, and I'll read a little, here's one of the paragraphs that's getting all the attention. Dudley writes, after all, Trump's reelection arguably presents a threat to the US and global economy, to the Fed's independence and its ability to achieve its employment and inflation objectives. If the goal of monetary policy is to achieve the best long-term economic outcome, then Fed officials should consider how their decisions will affect the political outcome in 2020. He's basically arguing that the Fed should not lower rates to help the economy because hurting the economy will hurt Trump and will then get him out of office, which will be better for the long-term health of the country from an economic perspective. And I think that does depend on who beats him because I think if Bernie Sanders beats him, you could actually argue maybe not <laughs> depending on what Bernie yeah, wants to do. Definitely not. <laughs> and so I think that matters, but what's so I think problematic about this op-ed is that it it feeds into this conspiracy theory that once again the Washington deep state elites are trying to move the levers of Washington to keep, you know, the, 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 the you know, Donald Trump, the working man who fights for the working man to, uh, you know, to fight against Washington. And so not only is it bad and I, is it a, in my opinion, a bad idea that the Fed should even take polit- politics into account. But to me, it's a bad idea because it gives fuel to these crazy conspiracy (laughs) theories that continue to exist on the internet. And look, oh, look, here once again, deep state trying to influence the election. And so I think it's problematic for a lot of reasons. I'll just take the side of defending Dudley here,
1: although (laughs) I strongly agree with you. The argument Dudley is making is that basically if Trump is tanking the economy, then and the Fed cuts rates, it's going to make the U.S. dollar Cheaper relative to other currencies, for example, versus raising rates, which will make the U.S. dollar go higher relative to other currencies. And as a result, it will help to mitigate the impact of the tariffs. If the Fed acts to mitigate Trump's mistakes, Dudley argues that they're essentially encouraging future mistakes. And that if if Trump's approach to economic policy is in the long term is to the long-term detriment of the US economy, then the Fed should not enable that going forward. And and so the Fed should, if Trump wants to wreck the economy with, with tariffs and a trade war with China, the Fed should just do what they're going to do. But the problem is, is that Policymakers are always affecting the economy. As you and I talked about it before the show, do you think that the mistakes the government made in the lead up to the financial crisis in encouraging and basically holding a gun to banks' heads, trying to get them to make loans to people who couldn't afford it, do you think that didn't affect the economy? That, that was a good policy decision? Should the Fed's policy then not keep the economy from going into recession, keep people from losing jobs because Washington made his mistake? No, the Fed has got to take the political calculations out of it. Their independence is their currency. Their independence is what makes the whole system work. And as you point out, as soon as they decide to be the arbiters of what is the right economic policy and what isn't, they have overstepped their balance.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, to me, it's, it's interesting because this is really a big debate on many, many, many different issues that we see almost every single day in politics, especially in the age of Trump. And we'll see this argument made. In fact, um, it's, it's one of the uh, main themes of uh, Kevin Williamson's new book, the smallest minority, where he talks about how people will make these sort of illogical arguments, these illiberal arguments, while they'll say, you know, we have to destroy, we have to stop that person from speaking in order to save free speech. And it's like, we have to stop democracy in order to save democracy. We have to destroy this system in order to save the system. And it's such a weird argument. And that's kind of what Dudley's arguing, where he's like, the Fed needs to act outside of their box in order to save itself. But unfortunately, by doing that, they will destroy the institution because it will no longer have its independence. It will no longer be looked at um, as sort of this, you know, a political body. It will now be a political body. It will now be exactly what people were worried about the central bank becoming. And let's also not pretend like there isn't pressure by other administrations on the central bank. And it, it it's, it's always been there. Trump is just kind of, as usual, kind of dumb in the way he goes about doing things. He doesn't have a lot of tact. And so. Instead of, you know, behind the scenes talking to, you know, someone to talk to the Fed chair, he just straight up tweets about it. Um, And we all know that's one of Trump's worst sort of um, unfortunate habits is his inability to have any type of tact when it comes to dealing with uh, anyone. And but the problem is, is that arguing that the Fed should go outside of its bounds in order to save the Fed is actually what will destroy the Fed. Um, I think the Fed will ask Trump. I think the Fed um, has survived many other things. The one thing the Fed won't survive is if it destroys itself. And that is unfortunate. Something that happens a lot under Trump is that people just go, oh, my gosh, this is broken. You know, it's or it's going to break. So we have to break it and then we'll put it back together and make sure it never happens again. But to me, that's always the wrong way to go about doing it, um, because that you're, you're and this is what Kevin Williamson argues in his book is he basically says is that you're doing exactly what you're claiming the theoretical idea is going to do. So you're actually you're to self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think that's what worries me about Dudley's um, op ed, that he's going to do the exact thing that he's claiming that Trump's doing or might do.
1: And let's finish off, Tyler, with the trade war. We have to talk about the trade war. I feel like we should change the name of this podcast to like <laughs> Axis of Trade War yeah. because it seems like we come back to it every week because this is a very big issue. This is going to affect a lot of people's lives, not only consumers who are going to find goods more expensive to buy, but workers who are going to find themselves out of jobs in Trump's effort to save them if it continues to go sideways. Now, on Sunday, Trump announced that the Chinese had reached out and said they'd be willing to come back to the table. And the Chinese have not confirmed this, and people are pretty skeptical. But the markets leapt upwards anyway, and the Dow closed higher on Monday as a result. But the reality is that if the Chinese were calling, it's because they think that Trump is under pressure and that he will buckle to that pressure and take chicken feed in exchange for a climb down that gets him out of this trade war that could imperil his reelection. So if you game this out, the Chinese have every incentive to wait Trump out on this. One, they have a capacity to take a lot more pain than America does. They don't have an election coming up next year. They don't have an election next year or ever. Chinese leaders don't have (laughs) to worry about that. And they've got means of stifling dissent as well. So yes, China does have to worry about protests and that kind of thing and and some embarrassment. And maybe if it gets out of control, people trying to overthrow the government by force. But that's something that happens in the longer term. And they have plenty of means of keeping that from happening in the short term. But if they wait it out, one of three things will happen. One, the U.S. economy will go negative negative and Trump will be under pressure to capitulate or face damage to his reelection. Or two, he refuses to capitulate for a while, the economy goes negative, and everybody remembers for years to come what happens when you try to go toe-to-toe with China with this kind of aggressive policy. Or three, Trump refuses and he loses reelection And a new president comes in that has a very quick way of scoring a big win in terms of the economy, which is ending the trade war. And none of this ends in fixing the long term problems with China, which are real. China does force U.S. companies that want to operate within China to enter into JVs through which joint ventures through which the Chinese partners steal their technology, replicate it, reverse engineer it and then go back and compete with them. And it's not going to fix the non-tariff barriers that China is using to unfairly subsidize their industries. This is not going to end in anything that solves the big problems between the U.S. and China. And it will take tools off the table that we might have had down the road. Because if you did this as a collective approach with all of the major economies pressuring China and pressuring the WTO to reform and you had a TPP where there were alternatives for the these complicated, far-flung global supply chains to be able to go on uninterrupted if they switch suppliers from China, then you would have a shot at being able to push China to reform. But just the US putting tariffs on them is not going to be what does it? And you see the rest of the world, you know, they're uncomfortable with the way Trump is going about it, but they're, they are they recognize that these problems are real too. That's why you didn't see a lot of criticism of Trump at the G7 over the weekend, over the China thing, even though it's likely to hurt some of the European com- countries at the same time. What can they say? They have the same problems with China that we do. They just don't like his way of going about it. So I think this trade war is going to go on. And if you're playing the stock market, it's, it's not a good time to be long.
0: No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's not a good time to to be long. I actually uh, joked with someone that I wanted to start my own brokerage house only because I've been following Trump's Twitter for so long. And since he you know announced that you can almost get like an idea of how the market's going to react based on the tweets that he send out, like sort of like a, I'm like a Trump whisperer. I can like know what the, what sort of the reaction the market's going to have to Trump's tweets and because that's unfortunately a big driver is that Trump will tweet. Um, hey, China called. Things are great. Market shoots back up. And then all of a sudden, of course, the deal falls through because Trump, in this is something that happened over the weekend with the G7. Trump was making all of these uh, optimistic arguments about uh, his meeting and deal that he made with Japan and Shinzo Abe. And basically even at that meeting, Abe sort of like, eh, like, yeah, we're going to buy some corn. And like, even he wasn't fully buying what Trump was selling. And that's the problem is that Trump is a lifelong exaggerator and in worst case, an a liar. And the problem is, is that his now, you know, back in the day it was like, oh, okay, whatever Trump's saying, you know, maybe his company would be influenced or someone that had a connection to him maybe might be influenced, but now he is, his words control the markets. And it's a really big problem because he is far more optimistic about these deals than even most economists, even on their best arguments are are, are arguing is they're going to do nowhere near what he says they're going to do. And every time Trump says, oh, congratulations, you know, this is great. China's finally buckling. We're going to get a deal. I mean, he said this, I don't know how many times. And then two months later, nothing materializes. They all, you know, both sides end up walking out of the meetings. And yeah. I mean, th- this is how many times does this happen? And so I'm actually amazed. And there was a couple of weeks ago, there was a piece, I think, in CNBC or somewhere might have been the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg. And they said, um, you know, are Trump's tweets losing their power? Because he I think he'd criticized Boeing or something. And there wasn't really a big impact on the stock. We're back in the day when Trump would criticize a company, the stock would would usually take a hit. And you have to wonder if at some point Wall Street just stops sort of you know, just ignores him. And that could be problematic because then they're just going off data. And a lot of the data that's coming in, especially that looks at the future of the economy, like manufacturing and business investment and everything else is not good. Um, The only thing propping it up is Trump promising, hey, we're going to get a deal. We're going to get a deal. We're going to get a deal. And if they stop listening to that, then, yeah, you definitely don't want to be long.
1: Well, that's all the time we have for this week's Axis of Reason, where the fundamental political divide isn't left versus right. It's reality versus nonsense. Thanks for taking 30 minutes or so of your time to join us in being an enemy of nonsense. (laughs) If you like this podcast, don't forget to go to your Apple podcast app and subscribe or do the same wherever you get podcasts. Until next week, I'm Taylor Griffin for Tyler Crowley. We'll talk to you soon.